In addition uh, to being a senior news editor, I'm the co-host of More to Come, uh, which is a weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing uh, that I do with my colleague, um, Heidi McDonald. Uh, you may have heard her. She's also the editor-in-chief of The Beat. Uh, and with our podcast producer, Kate Fitzsimmons. So check it out. It's free, and uh, you can um, get it on iTunes. Uh, but uh, what we're going to talk about today, um, selling comics to uh, a diverse audience. And I'm, I'm going to set the scene for just, just as I usually do when I moderate panels, uh, by talking about uh, a little bit about myself. All right, I, I grew up at a time when, um, uh, in the 60s, uh, where everyone was straight and white. Or, or so we were told. Mm. What? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know what? Of course, that wasn't really true, but you couldn't tell it by looking at the comics. Mm. Uh, we're in a whole new world now. Uh, we, uh, uh, um, we, one of the more exciting things uh, about our medium right now uh, is the new readers that are coming into it. Um, what we're going to do today is talk with um, four retailers, one former retailer, but really very close, still very close to the whole deal, uh, about how they deal with this, how how they uh, are attracting new readers, um, what's the nature of diversity, this word that we use and, and throw about. Uh, and I'm going to introduce the panel now, and uh, very briefly, and we're gonna, and, but I'm going to give them a chance to talk about themselves, as well as their stores, and how they're dealing with the, the new world of comics retailing. Uh, and, and, and by that, the new world of comics publishing, and comics creators, and new storytellers that we see like exploding around us and uh, and as I put it this is uh, uh, we live in a world now beyond the one genre one format one kind of fan comics marketplace that mm-hmm. typified really my growing up in into uh, comics nerddom alright so uh, to my left uh, Chris Butcher former manager of The Beguiling um, but very recently so. Yeah. Um, he's, he's doing other things. I'm going to let him talk about that and the beguiling a fabulous store in Toronto. Um, uh, Chris does a lot of things, but I'm going to let him talk about that. Next to him, Terrence Irvins. Um, you, the graphic novel buyer at Kinekonia in New York City. Another awesome store. I tell you, you, you like manga, you like uh, Western graphic novels, uh, you like stuff. No. Go to the second floor, Kinokania, Bryant Park, New York City. He's got what you need. Yeah. All right. Uh, next to him, who I, I've set the pleasure to meet, Jennifer Haynes, uh, owner of the Dragon in Guelph, Ontario. Did I get that right? Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and next to her, uh, Kristen Perez uh, from Santa Monica and Heidi Ho. Yes. Heidi Ho. Uh, Heidi Hill comments. Uh, so uh, that's the, the brief introduction. Now, what I'm going to do, and we're going to we're, we're going to go in the opposite direction uh, that I went. Uh, I'm going to get this started by asking uh, each of you, going down the line, to to describe your store and your own entry into the retailing business. Uh, and I want you to def- to define what what this what this panel's theme means for you. What does the diverse diversity mean? when you hear it and when you think about it and when you strategize around it for your store. So we're going to start with you, Kristen. Okay. Uh, I'm Kristen. Uh, I'm the owner of Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica, California. Heidi Ho Comics uh, is the oldest uh, and longest still-running comic book shop in Los Angeles County. We're celebrating our 40th anniversary this month, actually. Uh, it was 7-7... Seven, seven, uh, 
So I opened the store with that in mind. I decided Guelph needed a better store than they had, so I was going to do it. I was going to do that store, um, and uh, yeah, it's it kind of uh, kind of took over my life. <laughs> <laughs> At first, I was like, this doesn't work out in five years. I'm good, but uh, you know, it really became like a passion project to see it grow and develop. But it's always been based in that idea that um, I wanted a place where families felt comfortable coming, um, and you know, now probably almost half of our customer base is families. And you know, it's part of a special outings for them, or part of just their gift buying circuit for birthday parties and whatnot. Um, so it's been really important to me throughout the history of the store that you know the store be set up in a way that normalizes the shopping experience. It's it's set up in a way that you know you could walk into sort of you would get the same experience walking into like a Barnes and Noble as walking into the Dragon. You know, things are clear and they're laid out and they're labeled and the staff have name tags so you feel like a connection to them because you know their name. And there's all these, you know, we've, we've arranged things by genre because that's how people shop as opposed to by publisher. We do all sorts of things to make sure that we are a normal experience so that everybody feels comfortable coming in and they aren't feeling scrutinized or out of place or feeling like they don't know if this is the right store for them. We get so many people coming in who don't even know we're a comic store right away. They walk in and then they're like, oh, wait a second, what kind of store is this? Um, and I've had people recently ask me if we are a franchise because we carry ourselves like we're part of a larger organization, a larger chain. And that's really heartening to me because I know like that's, that's making good steps forward. Um, for me, diversity is about constantly paying attention to that, constantly making sure that in everything that I do, in all the training of my staff, in all the ways that I set up my store, that every single person who comes in is made to feel like they belong. And is made to feel like the best customer, whether it's their first time or their 40th time through the door. Um, we recently started uh, our new wave section, which is fantastic, uh, which kind of addresses the in-between, it's basically a YA section. Um, but we were really seeing a whole selection of books that were appealing to a very specific uh, market. So uh, late teens, early 20s to mid 20s women who were really into things like Giant Days and Motor Crush and Lumberjanes. And so we created a section of books that's specifically for them. Um, and it's been amazing. And so it's really, you know, giving people a place that they feel that their needs are understood and met when they come into the store. You know, I should, you know, if I just jump in for a second, I, I, I don't know if I've made clear, you know, that uh, most of you are comic shop stores, you're direct market stores, mm. uh, and, uh, and there is a difference, uh, and of course Terrence works at a general trade bookstore, but you've done both. So I just wanted to set the stage, uh, probably unnecessarily for you. <laughs> Keep drawing attention to you. <laughs> I am Terrence. Uh, I used to be an alcohol no, like, um, <laughs> no um, I got into retail by accident. Um, I started when I was a kid to draw and I wanted to be an illustrator and I even went to college to become an illustrator. But my life has been insurmountably, inextricably tied to comics and retail because as a kid I used to steal my comics. Um, then after that, I used to hang out in bookstores whenever I cut school, instead of hanging out in Times Square. What am I getting at with all this? Um, when I got into college, I worked at Barnes & Noble, and then I rose to the ranks to become part of the senior sales staff. 
and worked in other forms of retail right before working at Midtown Comics in New York City. And so I was hired at Midtown Comics to bring my expertise and know-how from Barnes & Noble to bring that type of sense of doing things to a direct market type of shop. What I brought to them was more of a customer service type of appeal. Not trying to change any displays or anything like that, but getting people to be more open-minded, think more broadly about who they're dealing with as far as customers. Um, not trying to stigmatize anyone who doesn't seem like your typical comic book person. Um, from there, I was hired onto Kinokuniya Books to where we decided to expand our selection of comics and graphic novels and bring the comic shop side into the bookstore. So I was asked to do the reverse, which I thought was a dumb idea. <laughs> but okay. it ended up being a very fascinating experience for me for the last five years. And what I've learned is that this market needs to be approached in a more book market sense while still catering to those who have a specific idea of what they're looking for. Mm. So you want to be there for everyone. You want to show that same type of enthusiasm for everyone. And meanwhile, not putting everybody in a niche box of what they should be expecting for comic books. And I think that's the biggest thing that we're looking at right now. We're hitting a new golden age right now. A lot of people don't realize this. This is a new golden age where you have a lot of genres and books and ideas being explored that is outside the realm of what is expected to be of comic books. And it's more global now. And you have people from so many parts of the world who have an expectation of superheroes. And then you have so many people from this part of the world who have an expectation of beyond superheroes. And I think everybody can get that same type of love under the sun. And so, you know, I don't have a real fascinating story, but, you know, jealous of you all for that. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I do a simple job. And my simple job is basically to bring things that I find of interest in a very curatorial sense. To people who actually might have an interest towards comics that they didn't even know they ever thought. It's kind of like bringing them out of the closet when they didn't know they were in the closet, you know? And that's what I do. Hmm. <laughs> you know, Calvin drew too much attention to me. <laughs> no, it's good. You're on a panel. That's what it's about. You're, you're, at, the, you're at the front. Uh, you're sharing it. Uh, my name is uh, Christopher Butcher, and uh, until last month, I was the manager at the Beguiling Books and Art in Toronto. I have been a uh, comic book retailer in a direct market stores, direct market stores for 24 years, uh, ever since I was uh, a wee teenager. And um, I worked in all kinds of stores, like little like strip mall stores, big mall stores with kiosks and things like that. Uh, to destination stores uh, like the Beguiling, where you don't even know it's there, even if you walk by it half the time, which is kind of great too. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, um, for me, uh, diversity means seeing yourself in your reading material. And I didn't really see a lot of that growing up. Like, you can project yourself onto the Transformers or X-Men. Uh, they're all metaphors, you know. Um, but you don't necessarily, they're still not living your life. And um, for me, uh, it was, um, I was really loyal to my local comic shop, uh, which was like a 20 minute drive away, uh, to the point where there was the guy at the comic book shop, you know, 10 minutes down the road was offering me a job and I was like, no man, I shop at a different store. Like, no, 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 you could work at this one. And I still shopped at the other one for the first few months I worked there, even with the discount. Because it's, people are loyal to their comic book store. Um, 
I guess, uh, and right around the time was when I saw The Invisibles and I saw like actual out queer characters for the first time and I could see myself reflected in the pages of a comic book. It was, it was crazy. Uh, and I'd never had that in my whole life before and it was really big, it was a really big deal for me and it helped me, you know, eventually come out. Um, the Beguiling is uh, a unique store. Um, it was one of the three stores that was awarded the very first ever Eisner Spirit of Retailing Award, the uh, first year that they offered it. And it's because The Beguiling, since the beginning, has been committed to carrying little, literally everything. Every book that's in print, and then hunting down stuff that isn't in print to give the widest possible viewpoint uh, what is possible, most diverse possible viewpoint, I guess, since that's the language we're using today, uh, of the industry. And the idea was um, antithetical to curation in a lot of ways. It was about just like, put everything out there. Don't make anyone who comes in the door feel special or necessarily even welcome. Uh, but create this space where if they want to, they can find their own space. Yeah. And it's uh, really antithetical to contemporary retail. Uh, and the store is still like that to a degree, although they're changing a little bit. Um, circumstances being, uh, they, they had to move to the smaller store now. But uh, yeah, the idea there was like, we're gonna just carry everything and we're gonna let people find their own space. And uh, it's not for everyone, for sure, but it did mean it, that people could enter the industry, enter the medium of comics without those preconceived notions. We did a little bit of curating where the first floor where you walk into the store is art comics, but also art books and literature. And we used to carry all the Beats novels and things like that. And then the superheroes and the stuff from the more initiated uh, fan, the people that wanted to dig a little deeper was upstairs. And I always thought that that was a really great way to lay things out because you could enter the store and encounter graphic novels. You can encounter graphic novels before graphic novels was a, was a term. I mean, we've known each other forever. Mm -hmm. um, you can encounter graphic novels before stores carried graphic novels. Um, and that was a big deal. And then if you were like, what else? So like you'd come to the store for like a year or two and then go, wait, what's upstairs? You just never go up and see what the rest of the store has to offer. It's like, well, go upstairs, they'll, they'll show you around. And it would be the manga and it would be the superheroes and it'd be the sci-fi, it'd be all that kind of stuff that has become the, the, the mainstream today. So it's, uh, it's been a really weird, long retail road. I've been writing about comics the whole time as well and trying to direct people to what I thought the good stuff was. Um, and then just recently I took a consulting editor job, um, literally last month at Biz Media, where now my job is to make sure that we're only publishing comics that people want to stock at. Kino Cunha and at their comic book stores. Uh, because, you know, there's... Uh, I think I think a lot of people want to publish a lot of different kind of stuff, but I want to make sure that the quality is still there too. I think people deserve good comics in addition to comics that reflect their lives. And I got really lucky when I was young that I found a comic that spoke to me, and I'm glad it was of quality. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I want to make sure that we're we're putting good stuff out there too. And, and let me just congrats to you, Chris. Oh, thank you. No, no, come on. I'm really happy that you got this um, new gig in like you know. Really happy to have you. Uh, thanks. <laughs> Wanted to say that myself. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that, man. Uh, well, if, if you're not familiar, I mean, Chris Butcher has been doing amazing things in so uh, many different areas of comics. We want to grab him, talk about TCAP and all the rest. Oh, I forgot about TCAP. Yes, one of the most awesome comic shows. I founded a comic festival. It's yes. 15 years old next year. <laughs> in his spare time. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 15. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm so old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So, all right. All we, right. Could Sorry, do a yeah, yeah. we could do a panel on Chris, right. but we won't. Right. Uh, okay. So, I mean, you've all touched on some of the stuff. I've got a bunch of questions. I mean, 
when we when we talk about what's going on in the retailing market today, I mean everything is changing, particularly in terms of comics. Um, uh, I'm going to, and this is really going to be directed at the the uh, the direct market uh, uh, authors. Um, is the material available uh, for these new audiences? I mean, and, and there's another question. I don't I don't mean to make this too complicated, but I just think there's the, is the material available. And and where where do you see the demand coming from in your community? So if that makes sense. So we'll jump back to uh, we'll jump back to you, uh, Kristen. Yeah. I thought uh, we were gonna go this I mean, we we've, we've touched on some of this stuff, but let's see if we can elaborate a little bit more. Uh, um, is the material available in the, in the direct market too? That you have, yeah. uh, that's a particularly contentious. I mean, we've all kind of talked about how we have we are seeing the industry changing and um, the big two definitely have a lot of changes that have been going on but a lot of the indie um, publishing companies is a lot of where we find our um, diversity and what we saw my answer is kind of like a yes and no because boom dark horse vertigo all those uh, publishers have um, have books that uh, highlight diverse characters, um, lots of stuff that's good that's being out there. But you also have publishers like Emmett Comics, who um, was is recently a new publishing company uh, started in 2015. Um, their main focus is bringing diverse uh, creators together, specifically. Um, to empower girls and women through storytelling, through comic storytelling. You have um, things like Prism Comics, who um, it's a hub for all of the LGBTQ um, creators and writers and places where they can go and network and, and have um, you know a place to, uh, to work out their stories. And, and they also have a website that offers these books. Stranger Comics, a small publishing company who's um, mostly highlights black protagonists in their stories. Those last three ones that I just mentioned, for the most part, are not available online through Diamond Comics, which mm. is how direct retailers get their books. Some of them are, yeah. Some of them are. Um, very small print runs, for sure, right, though. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as, as a retailer, you have to do your research. You have to do your research of what's out there because the things that come in your previews book every single month is not the end all, the be all. There's so much more out there. Check, go to your local conventions. The Artist Alley is full of creators that have compelling stories to tell. Um, so uh, it's definitely out there, but as retailers, sometimes you really just have to do your work to find it. Just to add to that too, I mean, even the previous catalog does when it does have good stuff. You get one kick at the can. Yeah. Diamond isn't yes. stocking a lot of diverse material. Isn't yeah. stocking a lot of stuff for kids. Like I'm gonna just say this once because I could just do this with the whole panel. Diamond is not can't be the end all and be all for comic book stores yeah. anymore. They either either need to step up their game or retailers need to go around them. And that's something yeah. that we learned like 20 years ago, uh, and everyone else is starting to realize. Like, why can't I get? a reorder on Real Friends. Like Real Friends is the number four best selling book in like indie bookstores right now and Diamond isn't gonna stop take up an inventory position on it. Like there are real problems uh, with how they're doing business. And like you know what? We've got the tools. We can set up 
accounts with Scholastic. We can set up accounts with Macmillan. Mm -hmm. We can set up accounts with Ingram if it comes to that. Uh, it's that's that's where diversity is going to come from. Is a diversity of ordering sources. Yeah. I think on every level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You two both covered anything that I was going to say. On. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, well, but, but you know, I, I do want people to talk about their stores too. Okay. So, so, so we've. I mean, we've. Uh, We've always had graphic novels. We've always been. We've always tried to accommodate different levels of fans. That's always been part of our mandate. Is this idea that um, every level of fan is welcome and helped at the Dragon. With more so, I would say the casual fan. We we don't have the skills or the or the inventory to cater to the very hardcore comic fan who's looking for very rare key issues that sort of thing. Our focus is way more on the families and you know the people who are getting into comics for the first time. Like we love those people. That's fantastic. I had a woman come in the other day and she was buying comics for her brother and I was like, well what about you? Do you read comics? She's like, oh no, they're they're just they're not for me. And I was like, well what have you read? She's like, oh he tried to get me to read, you know, this Wolverine comic <laughs> X-Men. And I was like, well what about non-superhero stuff? And she said there's non-superhero comics? Oh, no. <laughs> I it's, so, it's so wounding to hear that people, people yeah, don't right. know like, here, it. Take I'm this sorry. issue of Saga home and read it and then come back and talk to me. And she came back a few days later and she's like, I'm so embarrassed, I don't understand how to read these. So I, like, I went through how to follow the panel transitions and everything. Um, she ended up buying uh, Seekers into the Mystery. Yeah. Huh. Just like, that's not a light entry into the <laughs> <laughs> no. And she is like, she came back a couple weeks later, she's like, you're right. I, I just came in to tell you, you were right. I love <laughs> comics and I will be back. And so like those moments are the key moments for me. Hmm. You know, really being able to connect people with comics that for the first time or for the 40th time, but having so much diversity, like even my, even my hardcore like superhero customers will pick up comic of the week because we never put a superhero book as comic of the week. It's always something else that we're interested in. You know, our staff have such a wide range of interests in comics that we want to make sure that people know how many different things they can be reading out there, how many different mm. books there are. I feel like I've meandered and I'm not sure where I was no, going. No, no, it's good. no not it's good. at all. I mean, I, I think Chris, I'm, and I'm going to get to Terrence in just a second too, but I think, <laughs> I, think I, got, I, I, want, I want people to know about Terrence. Um, I, I, I think Chris brought up a really interesting, and, and it's, it's one of the questions I have on on this. I mean, part of what I'm curious about is how has the book trade, how have books impacted the, these direct your know, direct market stores? And and you're saying, um, as you were saying, Chris, uh, the distribution. We live in a new era. Stores need to go beyond uh, the diamond connection, I guess. I, uh, I, I really think that things like the We Need Diverse Books movement are really important. Sure. Sure. Um, but uh, coming, coming at that market from the direct market comic side of things, it's like it's paradise as far as we're concerned. Like the, um, the breadth and diversity and stock levels and like even the terms where we can try stuff out and return it if it doesn't work uh, is uh, remarkable. Uh, is, is a remarkable thing. So, That's yeah. That is the dream. It's like. What if we just tried to do everything that's in print from a publisher because we've never really carried that publisher before? If it doesn't work, we'll return like nice copies of it. But if it does work, that's great. Now we've got a whole new product line. That's not something that working with a direct market affords us. Uh, and, and can I just say, I don't know whether, I mean, I always like to make sure that people understand the distinction between how the direct market yeah, sure. stocks itself and how the general bookstore trade because very often people don't know. 
So would one of you guys could, I mean, generally, well, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. Terrence can talk about it. No, because I think, <laughs> I think there's a, a misleading to that because that's, bookstores are still bookstores, even if you're selling periodicals. That's mm -hmm. number one. Sure. So the options are there for you if you're aware of the options. The problem is when you go into setting up a direct market shop, you're not automatically aware of those options. And then the other side, problem to this whole thing is that you have to have a, a reasonable credit line to set up a, a lot of these accounts. Yeah. So when you're setting up a direct market shop, you don't already have that in the bank because when you got a business loan, you were only thinking about setting up a direct comic shop. You weren't trying to compete with a regular bookshop. But you are a regular bookshop. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just happen to sell periodicals. You are selling magazines. They're just content-driven magazines. Mm. And how I approach it has always been, as Chris mentioned, how can I get as much material that I can return, if possible, so I can promote it properly? Mm. Because if I can't order anything that I can't return, then I'm going to do less. That means I'm gonna do a disservice to the publisher. So we're the go-between. We're in service of you, the customer, but we're in service of the publisher. Because the more books we can sell, the more readers we can bring in. And the more readers we can bring in, then the more books we can order. So it's a, it's a give and go situation. But the direct market has tricked itself into thinking that because look, I have friends at Diamond, so I'm not gonna talk too much about it. But- <laughs> There's a reality. There's a reality. Yeah, there's a reality. <laughs> right, we right. all have so, friends at Diamond. I'm not too biased, <laughs> I'm saying, but at the same time though- I'm just, We're getting disinvited to that party later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's gonna happen. <laughs> Party at my place, I got a conference room, seriously. Um, <laughs> for no reason. Um, but the thing about it is that the options that are there for you when you start up a business are there. So you have to put yourself in that position to become aware of that. Are you opening a comic shop or are you opening a bookstore? And I want people now want to start thinking you're opening a bookstore. You just happen to be selling periodicals. Borders was selling periodicals. Barnes & Noble was selling periodicals. And I'm talking comics floppies, single issues. So how I approach it in my store was, like I said, I was bringing the direct market approach to a bookstore, but yet still thinking about how I can play around with things. I wasn't gonna order everything from Diamond unless I knew it was gonna sell. I, I'm gonna let the secret out of the bag right here right now. Uh -oh. I have a direct market account for our store. We're yeah, no yeah. different than anybody else on this dais right here. You know, but we have options though we have an account with baker and taylor we have an account with ingram we do have an account with everyone under the sun you know so it's a question of what are you willing to do to bring in the material to sell to that audience and that's why i play around because i want to bring everything in to bring in a diverse audience because i had to struggle with bringing in people who didn't realize that we were selling graphic novels you know, we had a small bookcase of graphic novels on our first floor that was right by the bathroom. No one knew what we were doing. What the hell was this? You had like Watchmen and then Peanuts right next to each other. <laughs> Whose idea was that? <laughs> I don't know. They're not there anymore. But the, but the thing about it though is that when I was tasked to bring in comics to our store, I thought of curating it in the sense of what I liked. And I read too many comics and I thought to myself, let me bring in everything that I like about comics and also art books and sketchbooks. So I bring in a lot of stuff from artists, publishers who don't sell directly through distributors. Yeah, Kino Kuni reaches out to a lot of publishers directly. Yes, mm -hmm. I, do, I do everything I can to do that to, in order to bridge the gap. Because with our store, 
we have too many people expecting only manga. Yeah. But those same people who read manga would also like Giant Days. Mm -hmm. Those same people would also like Awkward. Those same people would mm -hmm. like Real Friends and IRL in real life. You know, like there is a market for everyone if they open themselves up to that diverse material. So the question of this whole panel is, is it about diversity in the sense of ethnicity, gender, and so forth? Or is it about diversity about what you're reading? Yes. You know, and then... <laughs> All of the above. Thank you. But I'm not, I'm not finished it before you draw more attention. <laughs> this is also about what are you as the audience being diverse about yourselves? You know, do you have an expectation of superheroes that you never read superheroes? There are actually some good superhero books that you need to read. Yes. You know, and then there's also books that for you superhero readers should be actually opening yourself up to as well. Mm. Love and Rockets is still the greatest comic ever written. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we're getting into the philosophy. <laughs> but, but, um, well, this, I, I want to throw a question out all to you. And, and since we're go, we're, we're, we are talking about, the, 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 as I said before, uh, uh, we're talking about diversity of format uh, mm -hmm. as well here, uh, because that's going to lead to also even further uh, kinds of diversity. But I'm curious for the direct market stores, do you break down like how much of your business is uh, periodical and how much of it is book? Based, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah, and where where do you see um, the interests or the growth or? Uh, so for us, our breakdown is half and half. Uh -huh. um, Interesting. And uh, we're we're pretty close to that too. Yeah, we we give over a lot of square footage to graphic novels. Uh -huh. Lots. We carry a, just a very very wide assortment of books. We have a kids section that's its own separate section, and that also includes things that are not graphic novels, like picture books that tie in. So. Star Wars or superhero-related picture books will get in as well. Uh, you know, Pokemon handbooks and uh, all sorts of things that just fit into what kids are interested in because you know they're already coming in and they're passionate about it. So why not sell that extra book? That's how I see it. Mm. Um, so yeah, we have about 50/50 between the two. Um, I would say that the graphic novels have been just a constant growth area for us. Um, they're not showing any sign of slowing down. We bring more customers into the industry with the book format than we do with the periodical format, by far. Uh, it's just a, it's a more normalized reading experience, you know? It's, it's more satisfying to read all six issues at once than have to wait between issues. Uh, so we get a lot of new readers who are more interested in that whole book experience as opposed to the single issue experience. If I can add to that, though, I, I find it interesting because we started doing single issues for a little bit for the last year and a half. Um, if I had more space to do it, I would actually go balls to the wall crazy about it. But it's not necessary because I agree. You know, a lot of people want to read it in a collective form or in a complete OGN, original graphic novel form. But then when you have the beauty of, like, say, like a series like Monstrous, as soon as they jumped in, they immediately started going to the single issues. So... It can work. Um, it depends on the content and how attractive and gravitational that content is for people to get in. Mm -hmm. um, it can't work for everyone. Um, it's always worked a lot for superhero comics, but now it's working more for, you know, publishers like Boom and Image, you know, who's done it for years now with titles like Walking Dead. Walking Dead, when I was working at Midtown, people would catch up 
through the graphic novel to go straight into yeah. the actual issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you get to the end, you're like, what's next? And you're like, yeah. well, the next book is out for four months, right. or you can buy these three <laughs> issues that are right here, and switch formats, right. yeah, and then the people just buy both. Right. And you have three, and they're like, wait, I have to wait how long? Right? Yeah. Two years? For and that's when you know, that's when you know you have a problem. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> that's a proper analogy. You're going from like doing every six months to like every every month, and then some people act like they can't even wait another four weeks. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, imagine how it is like in Japan. Yeah. Where you're reading Naruto when it was published every single week. You know. Wow. See. Um, so this is a this we're we're the evil empire. We're saying we're trying to create addiction. Yeah. But, you know, it's about temperances of addiction, you know, functioning addiction of comics, or is it like you need to show up every week to splash out a hundred, and I've seen this at a comic shop, and you, all of you have seen it, $180 or more for that one Wednesday fix. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Over, over three ninety nine, twenty two page books. You can buy a $5 book in a manga format for an anthology, and you get about 300 pages worth of stories. The, the best thing about floppy comics is that, yeah, it's the Wednesday, Wednesday warrior, it's the Wednesday crowd, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, you can't really think of any kind of other industry where someone mm -hmm. is incentivized to come back not only every single week, mm -hmm. but they're going to be there at least once a month every single month. Yeah. And like, prose novels don't work like that. Nothing, no. nothing in our industry, like magazines maybe, but magazines don't have that same sense of urgency. There's no narrative that continues. So yeah, like, you'd be kind of... Foolish should not have single issues. It's yeah. just like I'm gonna bring someone into my store guaranteed every Wednesday, and the bigger, the more space I devote, the more those people show up, and they're gonna do add-ons like graphic novels. Or if you've got a nice counter display, they're gonna buy terrible little Dorps figures or whatever yeah. the hell is popular this week. The thing with those periodical buyers, though, too, is that as they grow older, their lives change, and, and they sometimes they paint. phase out of the periodicals. Yes. Right. Or they should. You have the graphic novels available, they can transition to that, but they're also having families, probably, right. and then mm. they want to introduce their kids mm -hmm. to the stuff they love. Yeah. They want books for their kids, and that's like an area we've always been like champions of, and we've been leaders in, and that's something I'm extremely proud of. Um, and that that we have so many customers coming in, yeah. or families who are coming in. Like we are a destination store for birthday present gifts at this point. Yeah, yeah. People will come in to the extent that we now have to bring in like gift bags and cards because people are coming in on Saturday, mm -hmm. buying a present to directly go to yeah. a birthday party, and they need <laughs> stuff to wrap it. They don't yeah. want to there you go. Stuff, mm -hmm. so. First, you know, direct direct market was such a low. Mo I just want to say yeah, real quick, please. Yeah, like what Jen was saying, like kids. Uh, to direct market was such a low bar for such a long time. Yeah. Like if you had a comic for or women, 51% per, of the population of the earth, you were a diverse store. Uh, and now it's like, yeah, like you should have comics for everybody, but at least, like especially children. Like if you if you have a store where you, you have someone come, who comes in and under the age of 18 and you can't sell them anything, it's probably a problem or you've got a hell of a concept store. Uh, but yeah, like that, that diversity has to extend to making sure that we we cradle the grave readers. Like we want to have stuff like the, the real book industry. You can buy a book for someone at any age, or a book, you know. And and we don't. We didn't have that in comics for a long time. We're getting a lot better about that. Well, the crazy thing is that the book market has done so well with these publications, and the direct market, for some reason, just doesn't want to also yeah. do well with those publications. Yeah. But why would you not stock Smile? Yeah, this the craziest thing I've I, ever heard. I think it's generational in a sense that. You know, the generation we grew up with that wanted to start doing this type of business 
only wanted to sell comics. Only wanted to sell the stuff they already liked. <laughs> right, you know? <laughs> yeah. So they wanted to feed their own ego for that. It, you know, but make some money at it. You know? so I, I but there are still some issues in, in the book trade around graphic novels, yeah. certainly oh. in independent bookstores. I yeah. mean, I mean um, speaking for myself, I, yeah. I, I, I don't want to try and make a better market for the direct market or the book market. I want to actually, and I just came from another panel um, talking about this, where we were discussing European comics. I want to bring the idea of the format of the business model of Europe to here. Because you have everything for everyone there, and there's nothing attached with trying to build an audience because your audience is there. You know, everybody's actually interested in reading something, so the actual challenge is creating enough content for people to be interested in. And over there, there's We're just way too much content, yeah, I know. actually. But the reality is that we've decided to marginalize and create a niche buying market here, and so it becomes difficult to actually build a diverse audience. Mm -hmm. And thankfully the publishers are out there. Now it's a question of, do the actual stores want to actually help the publishers in that? And does the audience want to be willing to be open to that? Because we're reinforcing everything that's been going on for the last 40 years based on the content of other media to help perpetuate that. You know, if you, if you went out and saw Guardians of the Galaxy, all you're telling yourself is, if you do buy a comic, you should expect only Guardians of the Galaxy. But if you went out and saw Ghost World, and I know I'm beating myself, but still, you know. It's still a good comic. It's valid though, right? Like you're saying to yourself, you're open to the possibility of reading comics like Ghost World. So, however, are you willing to open yourself to reading all of that, you know? And that's why I'm trying to bring Europe here. You know, that's the, the real secret to it. So I want to get some questions in uh, from the audience, but, but, but you got you know Terrence is rolling. I hate to slow I'm him sorry. down. You brought attention to me. <laughs> yeah. so. There you go. Yeah. But look, let's. Uh, are, are there questions from the audience? Or our time is running down. Uh, we have a great panel. Um, questions about retailing, certainly about uh, diversity, about how this world of comics, of selling comics, is changing. Come on, we got a microphone right down here. I could talk all night. <laughs> but now's your chance. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, no. Oh, Get, oh, please yeah, go yeah. right ahead. All right. Well, Matt Smith. Yes, I just have a question about diversity in common books. Uh, uh, Diamond, you said, obviously doesn't stock a lot of LGBT and a lot of, uh, of uh, superheroes of color and that sort of thing uh, to the max because they're mostly big two and then you got the woman and Diamond that sort of thing. Um, of the big two, Marvel and DC, uh, Marvel just came under fire recently for uh, the whole, the, the basically, the argument was that they're SJWing themselves to death, was essentially the argument. Mm -hmm. Would you say that any diversity, be it, pan, be it, be it uh, interpreted pandering or not, be welcome in comic books just because it is diverse? Is that, does that make sense? I say yes. Okay. I got no. Yes. But, but I mean yes to everything and no to everything. Um, what I mean by that is that if, okay, I'm going to just flat out say, if Marvel was creating much more interesting content regardless of the diversity, then people would have actually bought it. Mm. <laughs> so it's not a question of like, if there's no interest in diversity. I, I don't think that's the, the case. I think that's an easy way to say you're not doing well in sales. And that's because... The content's not really that interesting. That's, that's just my personal opinion. Um, if, they, if it was more interesting, and I'm not trying to 
crap on their work, even though it seems like it. You know, um, you know because look, DC's putting out some diverse books too, and their rebirth is doing great. Why? Because the branding's there, but also the content's doing well. The big difference for me between the two is that DC has a really solid kids line, yes. and Marvel has nothing. Yeah, that's a real problem. <laughs> Unless you're little X-Men versus little Avengers or yeah. whatever. Or if called. you want to look at screen caps of right. cartoons, that's right. not really satisfying. Yeah. So right. that's for me. I find DC more diverse. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, Marvel had a monster hit with Ms. Marvel, right. uh, and then they've tried to recapture that by like telling creators, "Give me the next Ms. Marvel." That's not. It's just not how it works, unfortunately. And there are some really great books like Squirrel Girl and uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur, and these books are amazing. The problem is that, that retailers aren't getting behind them and ordering them in quantities and hand selling them to their customers. And I think the bottom line is that retailers need to get more internally diverse. They need to be more open to the wider range of things out there in the comic format that they can sell to their customers. So I happen to love a lot of Marvel titles. I'm a Marvel girl uh, compared to DC. Um, uh, I, I read so many Marvel books, um, but I completely agree with what uh, Jennifer's saying is the retailers really have to do the work. I perpetually stop that timely issue of Moon Girl and Double Dinosaur that was um, published a couple uh, uh, Oh, it's been a while now. They uh, republished the first three issues of World of Dinosaur and put it out under the time title, and it was only $3. Every single time uh, somebody comes in with a child who's just looking around uh, while their father or mother shops, I hand them that book for free. And I am single-handedly selling our Moon Girl and Little Dinosaur trades uh, in our shop because those people come back. Because that book is good. It's good. Uh, and uh, representation is important. Uh, and so every time I see a little black girl come in, uh, I, they get a free copy of that book. Well, I, I, I do think there's good stuff from Marvel. I just feel that there's some stuff that's just not interesting, even though it's been... Oh, I agree. Under a lot of diverse yeah. stuff. You know. I agree. But I'm not backpedaling. <laughs> so we don't have a lot of time, so I want to get yeah, more we'll questions in. Sure, great. Uh, a lot of retailers, <laughs> in fact, we have almost earlier, uh, sort of got into business to sell the stuff that they like. Um, I also find a lot of retailers I sort of have interacted with, briefly anyway, uh, seem to be interested in uh, Building a retail establishment that is largely the goal is to hang out with the friends and talk comics rather than to actually do business. Pinball machines. Sort of a, <laughs> yeah. Maybe an issue around the thing that they're It's a trap. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Yeah, you should, you should never walk into a comic shop that's selling pizza too. What <laughs> <laughs> are the pieces of sort of fandom and geek culture that that we that might be getting in the way of people sort of actually taking a step forward and expanding the sort of limited expectations? And you know, I think that's probably going to be the last question that we can take. So I'm sorry, yeah, um, I got the high sign. So yeah, real real quick, um, you can have a lot of different kinds of stores that are successful. Um, and no, Jen's uh, store is different than Heidi Ho, or sorry, the Dragon, sorry, is different than Heidi Ho, is different than the Gallery, is different than Kinakunia, or even Midtown for that matter. Mm -hmm. 
and I think that you can actually put together a store that is fandom oriented, that is a good place to hang out, but also buy stuff. Uh, and you can you can do that. You can do it in a smart way. Um, you can also do that in a terrible way because anytime you create a community, anytime you create something that's inclusive, it sort of necessarily excludes the people outside mm -hmm. of it. So as soon as you create an insider outsider situation, you you have that issue. Uh, by making everyone an outsider, that's how the guy dealt with that. Uh, and it you know worked the way it worked, um, where some people hated shopping at the store that we we ran, even though we had everything, and some people loved it. But either way, everyone comes in on the same level. Um, I think that creating a really nice, inclusive community uh, has a lot of benefits. It has a lot of drawbacks as well. But part of that is just like you get to choose how you want to interact with fandom. I think everyone feels pressured um, in a different way to be like the everything store these days. Man, like be good at comics if that's your thing. Be good at graphic novels if that's your thing. Don't be good at you and your buddies hanging out playing magic because uh, that is that is not a good business place. That's, that's a basement. <laughs> like I've got a basement. Right. Uh, Let's make money in this basement. <laughs> Uh, so you guys, and, and I think Jen and, and Kristen, you guys run more community-oriented stores probably than anything that I have to do. Do you have, do you have thoughts on that one? Um, your community is what you make of it. So we are a gaming store as well as a comic store. We're um, it's kind of like 40, you know, yeah, it's about 45% comics, 45% games, and then 10% merchandise and other stuff, assorted things. Um, so we run gaming events five days a week. Um, we have very uh, high expectations of our gamers. We have rules that are set out very straightforward. Uh, you know, the, your language must be inclusive. Uh, you know, make sure that you smell good enough. Oh, <laughs> that's a rule? That's great. Oh, oh yeah. Um, you know, a good standard of, uh, of games. You know, make sure that you're, you know, we say keep your victory dances to a minimum. Um, and, uh, you know, just make sure that, you know, you're having a good time and you're supporting other players. So our, we're, we've gotten to a point now because we've been so vigilant about things like inclusive language and, uh, you know, making sure that new players are welcome and that people can come in at different levels that even though we have actually very high competitive players, we are not seen as a competitive store, we're seen as a casual store. Um, and our like our last pre-release, we had one pre-release where there were like two tables side by side, it was a two-headed giant, and we had two teams of women, and then we had two teams that were parent and child teams. And we have a ton of kids who come out, and we have a ton of women who come out to our events because they see themselves in the staff, they see, uh, themselves in the players, you know, they walk by and they see themselves represented in who's playing. And, you know, a lot of that is top down. It comes from the staff. It comes from, uh, you know, me making sure that there's pretty much always a woman working uh, and that she's knowledgeable and she has expertise. And so people can say, oh, yeah, well, I, I thought that this person knew nothing about magic, but actually, like, she's been playing magic since revised. <laughs> so, and you know what? Uh, I think that's, on that note, we're going to actually have to wrap this up, and that's a perfect way to end this. Uh, look, thanks so much to our panel. Um, uh, give them a big hand, if you would. And uh, thanks for coming out, and uh, read more comics, and, and this, is you, this isn't a better, you, you can pick a better time to go out and read more comics now. So thanks for coming out. Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at 
uh, publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right, we are back on the floor of the San Diego Convention Center at the San Diego Comic-Con International, and I have the great pleasure to be here today with John Allison, um, a creator of, uh, I mean, a whole string of web comics. Uh, I first uh, discovered Bobbins and Scary Go Round, and now you're into the bad machinery, but we're at the Boom Studios um, booth right now, and so we're going to be talking a little bit about Giant Days, uh, as well as a little bit about Bad Machinery and your uh, your Eisner nomination. So, John, welcome to More to Come. Oh, thank you for having me on. Um, great. So, as I said, I, I you know I sort of discovered you at, at Bobbins, and I loved your art style and the, the the chattiness of your comics. I mean, maybe could you just tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came in into comics? Well, I started web comics when there really weren't any yeah. web comics, kind of 1998, and then just kind of learned on the job. So my mm-hmm. first comic bobbins was really a strip format, not that different to a newspaper syndicated strip. Then because I was working on the web, I could do, found out I could do longer stories, I got better at drawing. So I started a series called Scary Go Round that was just broader storytelling, than, but using the same characters. Then as time's gone on, I've spin, spun off other series from that. So Bad Machinery took the same town but had kind of child mystery solvers in the yes. weird town that the scary around was set in and giant days is one of the scary around characters she goes off to college in another town makes friends and it's kind of a slice of life drama about them and i mean that really seems to have taken off i know uh we had one of our writers do a do an interview with you about the the, the first volume mm-hmm. and uh it, 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 describe the scenario a little bit because they're off in college and they go to college. It's about how you make friends with people based on the fact that they've been put in the same like dorm corridor next to you, you know, and those are now your friends by default because you knock on those doors first. And every issue, it's a monthly book. You know, it's you know in the direct market, twenty-two pages. Every issue is another adventure. It's like an episode of Seinfeld. You know, I try to like finish it off within the uh, within the issue. But then obviously there's a broader overarching story as we get to know those characters. And you've also, as you kind of reinvent your characters, you kind of reinvent your drawing style too. I mean, is that you feel that's necessary as you uh, segue into another kind of storytelling? Well, drawing really is my passion, and you know, it's my hobby. And then, kind of writing is kind of the work, and then the drawing is my hobby, and I just kind of do them simultaneously. So I'm always trying to learn because that's the fun of having a hobby is getting better, whether it's woodworking or whatever. You want to get better and better and better the more you do it. Um, now, you uh, also got an Eisner nomination. This is for Bad Machinery. Yes. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that particular volume? Book five, which I think maybe, I don't know if it's the strongest volume, but when I did it, I knew it was the best of the five I'd done so uh, far. It's the case of the, now I have to think about this that, very Is that carefully. the fire inside? It is the case yes, of the fire. Thank yes, you, yes. Calvin. Thank yes. you for knowing my work better than I know it. Yeah, it's the case of the fire inside. It's the, it's the traditional Selkie story, you know, the girl who comes, the seal girl who comes out yeah. of the sea. I didn't know what a Selkie was until I, <laughs> until I read the comic. But but yes, but, well, once again, I mean, uh, these, these group of kids at uh, with Griswold's the Yeah, school. Griswold's Grammar School, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, they solve mysteries, uh, wacky ones, uh, very often, but it's interesting. I mean, one of the great things about your, your comics, I mean, I do sort of forget the mysteries occasionally because I'm caught up in your dialogue, your banter. Well, the mystery is always a side dish to mm-hmm. the main thing, which is their lives. You know, they're books about growing up and they solve mysteries. They're not books about mysteries and they happen to be growing up at the same time. So in each book, they're a little older. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think I've done 10 stories and that kind of takes them from being 
kids to proto adults. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one's nominated you in in one of the categories. Was it, I think it's was it comics it? and teens, thirteen, uh-huh. seventeen. I think. All right. um, uh, and I and just because I happen to read it also, uh, in volume seven of Bad Machinery, yes. um, the Fork Road. Case the Fork Road. Now that's yeah. a time traveling tale. It is. Yes. yes. <laughs> and once again, a wacky time traveling tale. I only know how to do them wacky. Yeah, I can't <laughs> play it straight. I don't know how to play it straight. <laughs> um, well, you, one of the things you mentioned uh, is that you really were a pioneer uh, in web comics, and I, I'm very curious. And, you, and also, I guess in self-publishing, weren't the early volumes of uh, Scary Go Round? Scary Go Round. I published eight volumes uh-huh. before I moved into traditional publishing, mm-hmm. and it was just because it was a way. If you self-publish, you get to keep most of the money. <laughs> yes, and, this makes perfect and it, sense. And if you have an audience, you can sell a couple of thousand books, and mm-hmm. that's a good part of your year's money, rather yeah. than having sold 20,000, perhaps taking a 50 cent royalty on each one, which yes. is the sort of thing you might be offered early in your career, and you can't live off that. Sure. So it, it made sense to self-publish, and I had enough go-ahead to do that. Mm-hmm. I had a bit of money saved up to print my first book, and I just rolled mm-hmm. it over for each one. Yeah. Um, but then you made the transition to conventional publishers. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, did they approach you? Or how, oh, no, I chased after did you them. Tra- All right, yeah, well, I, you do what it takes. I, yeah, yeah I, I ran after them like a giddy schoolgirl. I ran away from me largely until Oni took up bad machinery. Yeah, I yeah. I realized I didn't have the marketing power. I didn't yeah, have the, sure. the time to do things differently. And also, I nickel and dimed books. I mean, I, they were, I did the best I could within the money, but I was never going to put French flaps on a book or go yeah, for sure. four different spot glosses because that's extra money. You know? Sure. You know, you're what, and the books were small. They weren't too small, but they were as small as was acceptable because that was the cheapest way to do it and you know make sure that I was you know eat sure yeah but they were also uh, you, you certainly did a good they were well designed I mean you were able to do a really good job within your limitations because uh, they were really uh, really uh, um, um, delightful books but were also very distinctively like put together too I just wanted them to be satisfying I yes. sort of, you know I look around at other things I look at what I thought was satisfying but that's a size where people aren't going to feel short change uh, do you feel like you, I mean you well indeed you are a pioneer as we see the the, the web to print phenomenon uh, and even in line with the crowdfunding phenomenon really sort of creating sort of a new path to publication for young artists I mean is that do you feel like you're responsible or, uh, you know, a sort of forefather in that regard? On my grander days, I sit back and I think, all this, I invented all of yeah. this. But in, in some ways, I was almost too early, you know, mm-hmm. yes. because, you know, I was a little too early for crowdfunding and things like that, which would have made my life so much yes. easier. Mm-hmm. And webcomics, because websites aren't as popular, putting things on the website aren't as popular, because of social media, yes. video on the web, so much has changed mm-hmm. in 10 years. Perhaps... If I'd known what I know now, I know I might be slightly better off. My position might be slightly different, but in the end, I was just doing it because I wanted to do, do it, and, do that, it. And, that, and that, yeah. And so I can't be too bitter about it. And I, if I may, also, I mean, you're very prolific too. I mean, you really, as a, I assume you're self-taught. Yes. Yes. Um, but it, it seems from the very beginning, you're able to put out really uh, a lot of very professional material. Well, the secret is that. You know, a perfectionist is aiming to get to 100% and they won't stop until they get to 100%. If you want to produce a lot of work, you've got to get to 95%. Most people can't spot that last 5%. You know it's not perfect, but you're willing to let it out the door. And if you want to 
produce a lot of work, that's what you have to do. You have to be willing to say, I'm done after three hours. Whereas a perfectionist will spend another five hours sure. getting to perfect, but they won't get any reward for that, really. Well, you've made almost perfect payoff. Uh, well, well, tell our listeners a little bit about Giant Days. And because um, and, and, there's a new volume coming out, and uh, you mentioned it earlier. Oh, yes. yes. So um, there's a new hardcover edition. It's yes. called the Not on the Test edition, which uh, is the first two trade paperbacks plus the first self-published Giant Days book I did, which was kind of a 30-page indie uh-huh. mini idea that I drew myself rather than it being drawn by another artist, which mm-hmm. is how the series is. Plus a uh, story that was in an anthology, and it's in a very handsome edition, cloth-bound edition. I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> and, and so do I. Actually, uh, I've only read volume one, so I've got some catching up to do. But look, John, I want to thank you so much for being on More to Come. Oh, no, thank you. All right, it's a pleasure.